if you'll grab your Bibles or mobile device again, whatever your pleasure is, and turn with me as we read the gospel lesson out of the fourth gospel, out of John chapter 2. And we've been looking at the stories of Epiphany the first three Sundays of January. So the first Sunday we looked at the wise men coming, and last Sunday we looked at the baptism of Jesus. And the word epiphany means revelation or manifestation or appearance. So what are those ways that God is showing himself and showing his power through his son, Jesus? And so today we look at this first miracle or this first sign that Jesus did according to John's gospel. And it is here at this wedding feast at Cana. Now, you know, every culture has their own protocol when it comes to weddings and celebrations. And in Jesus's day, many of the young ladies were married on a Wednesday. And following the wedding ceremony, there would be a great feast, and then they would lead the couple through the longest possible route to return to their home. But they didn't leave for the honeymoon. They stayed in their home for about a week, and they opened their home, and they entertained guests. The, the party, the celebration continued for about a week. And so Jesus now has gone to uh, Cana in Galilee. It's a little village that's not too far from Nazareth, his hometown. When we were in the Holy Land in Israel in 2014, we went to Cana. And it's a beautiful little village there in the northern part of Israel. So we pick up the story in verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, that, that, that phrase on the third day is kind of a reference to in a short amount of time that's a biblical way of saying briefly or it didn't have it didn't take too long for this to happen on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee Jesus's mother was there now we don't know why she was there there are some who have speculated that that maybe she had a relative or a close friend that she had some key involvement in the planning of the wedding or just wanted to be there but Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, if you were to read back in chapter 1, you would have seen that thus far Jesus has called five disciples. The twelve have not been completely called, so five are with him. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, Back in the biblical days, wine is three parts water and two parts wine. So it's weak. It's weak. And water is really valued by the people of this day because it's so scarce. But in times of celebration, they want wine, so families would save their money for long periods of time in order to be able to celebrate appropriately. But now the crisis has occurred. They've run out of wine, and that's the worst uh, social, uh, inappropriate behavior that could be offered by a family. No more wine. So Jesus' mother reports this to him, and he responds in verse 4, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 
to 30 gallons. Now, you know, the Jewish people, when they traveled, they walked in sandals. So if it's dry, their feet are dusty, and if it's wet, their feet are muddy. So one of the courtesies of hospitality is that you have stone jars of water available to wash the feet. And ceremonially, a good Jew before he or she eats is going to wash their hands all the way up to their elbows and even do it sometimes between courses in the meal. So that's why those stone jars are present. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, let's cut to the chase this morning and understand one thing about this first miracle or sign that Jesus performs at the wedding feast, the wedding celebration at Cana in Galilee, according to John's gospel. What Jesus really changes in this miracle is not just water into wine. That's not the ultimate miracle. What really Jesus changes at the wedding feast is the lives of those five disciples that accompany him at that wedding feast. Because the text says in verse 11, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So you see the turning of the water into the wine is just the backdrop of the story. It's the disciples turning into people of faith. Now that's the real miracle of this story. You see, God's miracles, God's signs of his presence in our lives go beyond just the signs and the miracles themselves. They are designed to change us. How many of you remember 10 years ago this past Tuesday the event that occurred that has since that time been called the miracle on the Hudson. Raise your hand if you remember the miracle on the Hudson. Most of you do. Just to remind you of the details, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 takes off from New York City's LaGuardia Airport. It's a cold January the 15th, 2009 day. The weather outside is 20 degrees. And at the controls of the plane is Captain Chelsley Sully Sullenberger. The plane rises to about 3,000 feet. And surprise, 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 what do they meet but a flock of geese? 
and it knocks out that, those two engines. I don't want to be on a plane where the two engines are knocked out, do you? And suddenly Sullenberger's only got a few seconds to decide what to do at 3,000 feet up in the air, and he determines he can't make it back to LaGuardia. And so he decides that he's going to land that plane on the Hudson River. You know, it really is incredible. It truly is a miracle that Sullenberger is able to use his incredible navigational skills to land that plane on that river without it breaking apart or without it sinking immediately. And yet, all 155 passengers aboard land safely and get out of that plane. I think there are four passengers and one flight attendant that have some injuries that take them to the hospital. But you know the real miracle, the real miracle of what happened that day as newspaper reports reminded us this week, is not so much that that plane landed safely on the Hudson River, but the real miracles and the real signs of God's presence have been in the passengers' lives that have been changed who were aboard that day, that plane, the passengers' lives that have been shifted since that time. You know, there are a number of passengers on that plane that day that hailed from North Carolina said Steve O'Brien of Charlotte this past week, I realize that little things are to be appreciated, that mundane things are what make up your life, and that it's the things that you're going to miss if it's going to be yanked away from you. Said Pam Siegel of Wilmington, it certainly gave me some clarity around my life priorities and the importance of my family. Said Trip Harris of Charlotte. He said, that day made me a better father, a better husband. And flight attendant Sheila Dale said, I have a whole lot more gratitude about my life. You, you know, events that happen that we interpret as signs and miracles of God's presence, of God's grace in our lives, those signs that take place do not just change the potential circumstances that could have occurred, but they change us too. Signs of God's grace and presence change our priorities. They change our perspective. They often change our relationship with other people, and many times they change our relationship with God. And often it's the signs. It's the miracles. With the changes that come to our life, those changes come with abundance. You know, the Cana wedding feast guest, they don't need an extra, an additional 120 to 180 gallons of wine to complete the marriage celebration, do they? And yet God gave that to them that day through Jesus in abundance. And when God gives His grace and his presence, and his faithfulness to our lives, he does it often in abundance. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20, which was our 50th anniversary celebration verse, this coming April the 26th, can you believe it was five years ago that we celebrated our 50th? We'll be 55 years old in April. As Paul wrote, now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more, than all we ask or imagine. How does he do it? According to the power that is at work within us. 
You see, when God gives to us his grace and his presence, when he gives us miracles and signs in our lives, he does it with abundance. The psalm that we read, Psalm 36, did you notice? It proclaims God's love to the heavens. It acknowledges and celebrates God's faithfulness to the skies. God's abundance doesn't have any limits. Now, you and I, we're a little different. We like to put limits on what we'll give, what we'll do, what we'll see, where we'll go. And lots of times we buckle God into a seatbelt and we won't let him out because we've determined he's not going to do X, Y, Z in my life. He's not going to stretch me beyond my comfort zone. God's love and his faithfulness and his grace and his presence doesn't have any limits. We're the ones that place the limits on him. But God's a God of abundance. There was 120 to 180 extra gallons of wine. They didn't need that much, but God is a God of abundance. But you know, I pondered this week a little bit about what it might mean for you and me when we pray for the miracle or the sign of God's grace in our lives and we don't get it. We pray for the miracle. We pray for God to show us the sign and maybe in the moment we don't get it. But what does that mean for us? Because, you know, initially in this story, it seems as if Jesus is not going to give his mother the miracle that she's asking for. Did, did you notice in the story that Jesus never calls his mother mother? He calls her woman. Now, to us, that may sound like a derogatory term. Actually, in this culture, it could be uh, a sign of respect and endearment. But Mary, the mo Jesus' mother, is coming to Jesus and she says, they don't have any wine. Parenthesis, get to it, boy, and wave your magic wand and do something about our problem here. But you know, ultimately, Jesus knows that he's got to obey his heavenly father's will more so than his earthly mother's will. And so maybe calling her woman is his way of kind of separating himself from his mother and reminding her, as he said, that, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And then she tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do. And ultimately, Jesus does give the miracle, the sign. But, but what happens? What happens when the sign doesn't come? What happens when the miracle doesn't occur? Can, can God still work and change us when no miracle comes our way? You know, Chaplain Gene Olson writes about walking into a hospital unit one day. And three nurses are there to meet her with these words. He's rude. He's obnoxious. He's volatile. He kicked all of us out of his room, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Chaplain, you better not go in that room. She went in anyway. And when Chaplain Gene Olson opened up the door... The shades were drawn in the room. And there was Butch sitting on the edge of the bed 
and staring at the door that Gene Olson had just opened up. Butch was wearing a Harley Davidson t-shirt. And so she said to Butch, have you got a Harley? I see your t-shirt that you've got on. From what I'm told, they're the best motorcycles there are out there. And Butch said, yeah, I do. So she told Butch that her two sons had motorcycles, and she asked him how he got started riding cycles. And with a lot of colorful language, he told her about the several Harleys that he owned and the thrill of riding the motorcycles. They both shared stories about a place they both had been to, Sturgis, South Dakota, where they have an annual Harley gathering each year. And then after a moment of silence, Butch said to Chaplain Gene Olson, you know, I should be out there tonight, riding, drinking beer with my buddies, meeting up with my gal. Instead, I'm here. He told Chaplain Gene Olson about how he got AIDS. He told her about the weight loss. He told her about the drugs that he took that made him weak and nauseous. He told her about having to move in with his parents. He told her about how he was now scrawny and weak and gaunt and useless. As he put it, a walking shell of the man I used to be. After about 40 minutes of conversation, Butch looked up at Gene Olson and he said, Who are you anyway? When I read the story about this, Butch actually used some different language than what I just used. Who are you anyway? Butch asked her. And she told her that, told Butch that she was the chaplain and that it was his option whether she came back to visit him again or not. You can come back, said Butch. And so over Butch's next two hospitalizations, Gene Olson visited him just about every day. One morning after a sleepless night, he whispered to her, do you know what I do when the pain is, hard, is so bad I can hardly stand it? I turn to him. Butch pointed across the room to the Catholic crucifix that was hanging on the wall of the hospital room. I didn't know you knew him, Butch, said Gene Olson. Yes, I do, said Butch. I went to Sunday school as a kid, and he comforts me. He really does. I guess I'm returning to my childhood faith, aren't I? And Gene Olson reached over and put her hand on his thin arm and said, Yes, Butch, I think you are. Butch nodded. And a tear ran out of his eye down his cheek. 
Butch died two days later. And the nurses told Gene Olson that when Butch died, the last expression on his face was a smile. You know, even when the miracle that we had hoped for doesn't occur, if we'll look just hard enough, we might find God's abundance anyway. Let's pray together. God, this morning there may be some folks in this place of worship or those who may be worshiping by way of live streaming or television this morning. And God, they need a miracle. They need a sign of your grace and of your presence. And Lord, we believe you can change our lives whether we get the miracle or not. But we pray that if it is possible that those signs of your grace, the miracle could occur. But Lord, if for some reason it doesn't happen, we pray you'd still change us and remind us that you walk with us on that journey regardless of what comes our way. So hear our prayer now. In Jesus' name, amen.